And in a moment here, uh, let me read the, uh, the passage that will be our study for this morning. And then uh, in a moment, I'm going to introduce our preacher. First three verses here of Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit are you now being perfected by the flesh? In a moment, uh, our, our preacher is going to come and, and teach that to us. I wanted to say a few things here before he comes up. Uh, first of all, I wanted to let you know that preaching is the most important ministry of this church. We have a very high view. There are some churches that view social activities as the highest thing. There are some churches that take pride in their programs. Uh, there are other churches that feel that they uh, need to have some uh, kind of a meeting of the needs of the community, and so they need to be community involved that way. We don't see anything wrong with, uh, with being social. We don't see anything wrong with uh, meeting needs. It's not the highest priority. For us the highest priority for us is God speaking to us hearing him that's the highest priority we want him to speak to our hearts because we don't trust ourselves right we want to hear from him we want it to be all the time. In fact, we, we so delight in the preaching of the word that we, 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 we lavish in its ring through the week. In other words, it resonates through our, our, our week so that we come back ready to feed more on it. We think about it. We let it resonate in our lives. We talk about it. It's, it's the height the height. It's not one of the things we do. It's the thing we do and everything else kind of falls under it. In 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word, he says. He tells Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4.13 Until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. To explaining that word and that's what we do. Now, this morning we have the privilege of hearing uh, Joel Duncan uh, preach to us. Uh, Joel Duncan uh, has been somebody who's been a part of, um, the Lord has used in a massive way, in a part of, of my past, uh, at a time in my life where there were very, very few men who were in my life to be an encouragement in regards to God's word. The Lord had a, in fact, actually I can say that the Lord used a few of them and those few are here and one of them is going to preach um, this morning. He He's a man whom I've seen the Lord grow. I've seen the Lord save. I've seen the Lord uh, grow his heart. His passion is unmistakable for God's word. Uh, I have spent many, 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 many hours into late in the night with him talking about God's word, chewing it over, talking about words, talking about passages, talking about theology. We have prayed together in such intimate uh, settings of just pouring out our heart with one another. I have seen the Lord. I'm seeing the Lord now uh, work in his life. It, it was apparent to me that this man might be gifted to preach the word that in, years ago, and I've known you, what, for now nine years, and probably eight years it's been that I have felt that this man has a, a, a gift to preach the word. It's taken about eight years to get him up here in this pulpit, huh? But... Uh, so 
it is exciting to, to see this. I look forward to your future um, and seeing the Lord in his hand on him. He said, well, be quiet. Get him up there. All right. Well, we, be, we believe that he should preach to us because he's gifted, he's faithful with the word, and so let's encourage our brother Joel as he comes up. Thank you, Mike. Wow, no pressure. <laughs> it might be another eight, year, eight years <laughs> before you see me here again. Uh, if you would just do, uh, just humor me, I want to pray one more time, and uh, then we will dive into the Word of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is, this is your family. This is my family. And as Mike said, this is, this is a place that is very important. It's a place where you speak. And so in the spirit of John the Baptist, Lord, I would say, please help me to decrease and you to increase. Lord, purify my motives. Um, help me to be someone who wants to glorify God above and beyond all else. And help me, Lord, to be used of you today to encourage the saints, to edify them, to build them up. I also thank you, Lord, for the grace that they've already lavished on me. So many have said that they've been praying for me and caring for me in that way, and I, I need encouragement and prayer so desperately. And so I thank you, Lord, for where I am today and for the opportunity to, in a way, give back uh, what's been faithfully given to me for so many years. In your name, amen. Well, I trust that you're in Galatians 3, uh, verses 1 through 3. And I want to open up today with a scary passage. And if you have kids and you've read this passage before, you know what I mean. Um, in Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21, it reads this way. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear, as I fear when I read it. I don't put this passage before you because this is going to be about parenting. And yet there is a parenting feel to the passage we're in because Paul is the spiritual father of the Galatians. You can read about it in Acts 13 and 14. You'll see that the Holy Spirit set aside Paul and Barnabas to go on the first missionary journey. And what they did is they went, and the bulk of their time was spent in a region called Galatia. And there they ministered and preached the gospel. It was places like Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. That's where they went, and that's where they preached. And the, it was a beautiful passage, beloved. You, you see the hand of God, those he appointed to salvation, bringing them to the Lord, filling their lives with the Holy Spirit, filling them with joy, giving them purpose and strength. Well, here, year, years later, Paul is getting some of the worst news that you could ever hear. And that is the news of this. The Galatians are deserting the gospel. The Galatians are deserting God. You can imagine how that struck Paul being a father. Let me tell you exactly what's going on in Galatia. What had happened was, as Paul and Barnabas had moved out, another group had come in, and they were called the Judaizers. To kind of give you a mental picture of what this is, what you have is the true gospel. And that's the one that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. The gospel of faith in Christ by the grace of Christ by which we can be forgiven of our sins. Nothing to do with us, only what God has done for us. On the other hand, you have the Judaizers. They looked at the law, and what they did is they said, you've got to keep this to the best of your ability. You must be circumcised. You must do everything you possibly can to be saved. And the hope is that if you've done enough, then you will be saved. What happens is in comes a group called the Judaizers. And they should be familiar to you because this is happening all over America right now. They're a creator of a hybrid gospel. What they do is they take the cross and then they take circumcision and they say, aha, here is the true gospel. Here it is, Galatians. It's not just salvation by grace through faith. It's not just works. You've got to have them both. Well, I hope you know as I do that that is, a, that is sheer lie. That is just works with a, with a pretty dress on, you might say. But sadly, the Galatians had bought into it. They had begun to listen to it. They called it the wisdom of God, and they had begun to go that way. And so Paul here is like a father. He's going in, and he's trying to fix this situation. I wonder what kind of a letter would you write? Let me tell you the kind of letter Paul did. Paul chose one thing, 
one thing to say to them over and over, one battleground to fight for them, and that is the truth of justification by faith. And you'll look there in your notes, and uh, what I have for you is an outline. I want to explain to you this book just a little bit. I want to put it in perspective and show you how he fights for them. First of all, you need to know that the context is that the Judaizers, one of the first things they did to undermine the gospel is they began to undermine Paul. Listen to some of the attacks they heaped on Paul. One was Paul is a man pleaser. When you preach grace, you're basically giving people a license to sin, right? So what Paul is doing is he's just trying to get you on his side. He wants to give you a gospel that really won't save you. He just wants you to be pleased in him. The other thing is that gospels, Paul's gospel is man-made. No authority. This was a big one. The Judaizers would be telling the Galatians, don't listen to Paul. He says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He'll tell you that he's even set apart from birth to preach the gospel to you. But don't listen to him because it's not so. Don't listen to him. He doesn't really have authority. And the other one is probably the most painful one is Paul's gospel is secondhand. That means it's not really the true gospel. It's not even confirmed by the apostles. And the bottom line is this. The Judaizers' conclusion, they know they succeeded with the Galatians, that the Galatians viewed Paul as their enemy. Galatians, you need to hate Paul. That's a hard thing to hear if you're a parent and you know someone is teaching your children to hate you. You need to hate Paul and fear him. What he says should be shunned. It should be done away with. Give no ear to Paul. So when Paul writes in these first two chapters, let me tell you what his goal is. What is he going after? Paul is going to defend God's gospel by defending his apostleship. That's the first part of this book. Paul labors diligently to show that he is a true apostle. And I think it's important that we note his mode or his method. This is sort of a principle on how you deal with false teachers or how you deal with rebellious saints. First of all, it is serious. It is sober and it is urgent. One thing to note about this is there's no greeting. In, well, there is a greeting, but there's no commendation in this book. When people are deserting God, it is not the time to say, you guys are doing great. That's not Paul. It is very, very obvious that it's not here. By the way, you know, if you know anything about the Corinthians, you know that they were a worldly group. They, were a, they had a lot of sins going on. Even they got a commendation. But here, Paul leaves it out. He's here to talk to them and talk to them seriously. Also, notice in Galatians 1, verse 1, take a look at that. I want you to know that Paul is also immediately, immediately confrontational. He can't get past it even in his greeting. It says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. First thing I want you to know, Galatians, I am not man sent. I am God sent. And that means the gospel I gave you is divine. And you need to sit up and listen to it. Also, this is great. Paul is authoritative, and he's not apologetic at all about this in these first two chapters. You know, and it would be easy to be that way, beloved. It'd be easy for Paul to say, well, I hear you don't accept me as authority. Well, let me talk to you as an equal. That's not Paul. Paul says, no, I have authority. It's from God. You're going to listen to me as you would listen to a parent. He says in uh, Galatians 1, verses 11 through 12, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Catch that. I would have you know. This is something you need to know and be utterly convinced of. So in the first two chapters, Paul establishes credentials. And then he moves on, and this is great. He moves from the defensive position, guarding his apostleship, to the offensive position. Now he's going to go after them. This is where they get to sit on the hot seat for a little while. Galatians 3 and 4 is justification by faith, the only way of salvation. Paul has to pound this into them. They've got to get this. If you look at Galatians 1.6, you'll see the context of what's going on in Galatia. We've already kind of looked at it, but I want to revisit it again before I show you what he does in chapters 3 and 4. Verse 6, Paul says, I am amazed. It's pretty impressive when you can amaze Paul. The guy's been around. He's seen a lot of things, knows a lot of things, seen the hand of God. This amazes Paul. You are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. The emphasis here is on the grace of Christ. You can't walk away from the grace of Christ without walking away from God himself. Can't be done. So the Galatians are deserting and the Judaizers are distorting. What are the Judaizers up to in Galatia? Well, this is what he says, which is really not another, only there are some disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
This is the activity of Judaizers. They like to distort. They like to twist. They like to, it's like leaving kids alone in a room. When you come back, it's probably destroyed. <laughs> but they're sweet, aren't they? Anyway. So yeah, the Galatians are deserting the gospel. The Judaizers are distorting the gospel. And what's happened is the Galatians have been brought to a fleshly pause. Beloved, you know what that's like, don't you? You know what it is to be in sin and everything stops. Your marriage stops. Your parenting stops. Your ministry in the church stops. That's what happened. We can call it a fleshly pause. Nothing is right. We're not in grace anymore. We're, not, we're suddenly in a whole new different ballgame. So Paul says what needs to happen is you need to be reconvinced of justification by faith and then everything can start up again. Paul's goal, he wants some convinced Galatians. How convinced do the Galatians need to be of justification by faith? And beloved, this is a question you and I face today. Because I bet there's so many, many, many of you, I know you, I'm sure you can articulate principles of justification by faith to me. I'm sure you have passages that come quickly to your mind. But Paul has in here a standard of justification by faith that exceeds your knowledge or your understanding. Literally, he wants it to control your life. Every aspect of it. How you deal with sin, how you serve, all of those things must be governed by what you believe and know and are fully convinced of regarding justification by faith. He even says that, you catch that in his letter in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. I want you to be sure, utterly convinced. And perhaps one of the most personal and passionate pleas is in chapter 4, verse 12, where he gives this long treatise on justification by faith. Powerful, irrefutable, crystal clear. Justification by faith is the only way you can be saved. And he ends on this. I beg you, brethren, become as I am. You will be as convinced of justification by faith, or I should say, when you are as convinced of justification by faith as Paul is, then you've arrived. Then you've got it. And that's, you know, it's funny as a standard. I, I can tell you, I don't want my children to be like me in the sense. I want them to go beyond me. You know? I want them not just to become a Christian and kind of do like I did. I want to put them on my shoulders and throw them farther. I want them to excel still more in the things of God. That's what Paul has in mind for these Galatians. A high standard. Become convinced. Obedience. That's what he's after. When their lives reflect the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. Literally, like it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 8, when their lives adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. How does he do this? Well, he goes through and he gives several irrefutable proofs, like I said, from the Old Testament that God justifies by faith alone. By the way, if you are looking in the shot in the arm for the proof of justification by faith, read chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians. It is argument after argument that brings it in and says it is so clear. One, one such argument, and it's worth noting, is Abraham was justified by faith, not circumcision. If you're a Judaizer, you don't want Paul to revisit that argument. You don't want him to make that example because it, it puts you in a tough spot. And here's just a thought. Imagine you're Galatia, and the false teachers are over here, and you're reading this letter. All eyes are kind of looking over here, like, oh, oh dear, wow, you guys are evil. You know what I mean? You can just get a sense of what was going on in the church. You know, this is a live and living letter to them, and I hope it is to you. So having laid out irrefutable proof for justification by faith alone, Paul addresses, now catch this, two groups. The, Christ, the Galatians he has won, and the Galatians who are still committed to the false teachers. That's chapters 5 and 6. He's talking to two people, those who are repentant and those who are not repentant. Some of them for sure have become convinced. They've said, Paul, you've hit it. I agree. I see. I've been in sin. I've been a fool. What do you have for me? Here's his instruction. Spirit-filled service. What does he give them? He says, all right, if you've come to a place of repentance, this is what I want you to do. Let me give you a picture of spirit-filled service. Galatians 5.13. You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What kind of freedom is Paul talking about there? You were called to freedom. Well, beloved, if you are in a works system of righteousness, all your good works are for one thing, impressing God. All your works are for one thing, to feel good about yourself, to, to kind of calm your conscience down. 
Leave me alone. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And when you die, you hope that the Lord will look at you and say, all right, good job. But here's the difference. When you're in Christ and you know salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, you know what you're doing when you do a good work? You're loving God. You're saying, I'm grateful. I love you. I want to serve you. I gladly and freely give you my life. You're free to love God and you're free to love each other. That's the instruction Paul gives. All right, convinced of justification by faith? All right, then go love God and go love each other. What about to the unrepentant, though? What is his goal for them? One word, fear. Be afraid. You are on shaky, shaky ground. You're on thin ice and the room's heating up. What does he say to them? Listen to some of these warnings to unrepentant people. All right, are you doggedly committed to this salvation by works and faith? Well, let me give you this. Listen to this warning, Galatians 5.3. You are under obligation to keep the whole law. All right, you want to go salvation by circumcision? Step one, keep the whole law. Every single jot and tittle. And good luck. Number two, you have fallen from grace. Here's a warning. You're probably not saved. If you are still unrepentantly committed to the law, you need to know you probably never were saved. By the way, that's a real strong emphasis in our passage. Paul is shaking them up. And isn't that the way you do it with people you love? You don't stand by idly when someone you love is in the worst situation imaginable. You jump in and you go for it. What else? And then this is the wall, oh, beloved. This one would, this just kills me. I don't know about you. Any of you have sat under a false teacher? Or any of you have been under the influence of a false teacher? You might know how this one feels. Paul also lands with this. He warns them with this, you are doomed to sit under the leadership of cowardly, boasting, self-righteous hypocrites who do not even keep the law themselves. That's the position you've chosen to be in. Those are the men you've chosen to follow, and everyone will be like his teacher at the end of the day. And so, beloved, in conclusion, just giving you this letter in the strong sense of it, this is the letter Paul writes to his rebellious children. Listen, he is an apostle of God. Justification by faith is God's only way of salvation. And the new life we have by and in the Spirit is for loving service. That's what it's about. Now the question comes up, what about us? I mean, here we are, Faith Bible Church of Fallon. Little Fallon, Little Nevada, Little Faith Bible Church. Do we need a letter like this one? And I ask you that because, you know, as I was thinking about you guys, and I was thinking about myself, I thought, well, man, my life is full of justification by faith. I mean, frankly, it's just a few things that pop in my head. The preaching, Romans, justification by faith. Wow. Day in, day out. How long is it? Never mind. <laughs> About as long as you've known me, I think. No. All right. Flock ministry. Man, we're going into Philippians. Life in Christ. Sir, surely, justification by faith is sprinkled all through the book. What about the book table? We have books by guys who have been dead for 400 years on justification by faith. Aren't we not committed? Doctrinal statement, there's a thorough treatment of justification by faith. Many verses showing you and also put in the broader context of salvation. So why pick a passage? Why pick a book that deals with this issue? And I put it this way to you. And beloved, this is something you and I have to be convinced of. If you're going to get anything out of Galatians, you can't come to it lording yourself over the Galatians. You have to realize that we are like them. We have a similar church and we have similar weaknesses. Let me give you a brief comparison. Do we have good preaching? I would say yes, we do. Maybe not every Sunday, but we have good preaching. They had Paul and Barnabas. Would you like to learn from them? That'd be exciting, wouldn't it? We have good elders. Qualified. Paul appointed their elders. You know, we turn those cards, say, I think this guy is qualified. Can you imagine getting one from Paul? I'd put it on my wall, and, yeah, look at that. and then he'd rebuke me. So, do we equip and disciple the saints? Or that's to say, do we value ministry in this church? This blows my mind. Paul and Barnabas, when they went through the Galatian region, if you read this, what you're going to find is everywhere they went, some Jews believed and some Jews hated Paul's guts. And they chased him. They would form mobs. Mobs that moved in a time when it wasn't really easy to move would move from city to city following him. And it caps it at the end where he gets stoned and left for dead. But this Paul and Barnabas go through and then you know what they do? 14, they turn around, they come back. 
And they hit all those churches. And what do they do? It says they strengthen the soul of the disciples and encourage them to continue in the faith. Beloved, they didn't just have disciples who taught them. They had disciples whose whole bodies showed the brand marks of Christ Jesus, that they loved the Lord. They had powerful testimony in front of them. In short, beloved, think of them this way. They were not a shabbily built, hastily thrown together group of newbies. They were believers like you and like me, who had failed to combat the lies that lead to fleshly living. That's what brought them down. They stopped fighting lies that lead to fleshly living. And so it is in that spirit that I offer you this passage, Galatians 3, 1 through 3. Now let me give you the thesis or the main idea that's going to govern this thing. In Galatians 3, 1 through 3, Paul confronts three lies which lead to fleshly living for the churches, whether in Galatia or in Nevada. Now let me start with this. How do you show someone they're believing a lie? And this is what you do. You tell them what you see. Take a look at that first passage there in Galatians 3, verse 1. This is Paul's description of the Galatians, or you might call it Paul's accusation against the Galatians. What does he say? He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul's accusation against them, by the way, this is a great introduction to a treatise on justification. Hey, fools, wake up. Now, I didn't use that today, you know, <laughs> but, but he did. You foolish Galatians. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about this word foolish. It literally means senseless or without understanding. Uh, William Henderson is helpful here. He says, the word indicates an attitude of heart as well as a quality of mind. It refers not to bluntness, or you might say dumbness, but to a sinful neglect to use one's mental powers to the best advantage. The picture is, Galatians, when the Judaizers came, you had the true gospel. You had justification by faith, but you lazily failed to apply it to what was being taught to you. This is the word that Jesus used in Luke 24 and 25 when he rebuked the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They had the law and the prophets, but were, quote, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. They had come to that place of not being sure anymore. The information was there for the Galatians, but the understanding and the application were not. So that's Paul's accusation. Galatians, you're fools. You're fools. You knew the truth, but you didn't apply it to what was going on. And then he gives an illustration. Bewitched. It's in that word bewitched. Who has bewitched you? Bewitched is the word aboscony. It means to bring evil on someone by an evil eye. <laughs> this is great. Um, if you've ever seen an old 1930s movie where there's a Dracula character and he has one eye bigger than the other and he's looking at someone and that person's stumbling around mindlessly, that's kind of the idea. Not exactly like that, but it's kind of the idea. You're being controlled by a hip, hip, hypocritical praise. The idea is someone has strong influence over you. Uh, the Galatians probably made use of things like flattery. By the way, that's why flattery is in dating. For control. All the men took notes. Anyway. All right. It should be noted he is not saying they are under a real spell. I'm not talking about actual sorcery here. I'm saying that they were under the influence of false teachers. To give you a picture, it was like the ventriloquist who has the dummy sitting on his knee. Paul says, that's what you've become. You've become like the dummy sitting on these guys' knee, and you're just saying what they say and doing as they do, and you're heedless and blind to the destructive path they've taken you on. One of the most painful questions I've ever been asked in my life was uh, early on in my marriage. And uh, it was a particularly dark time for me where um, I was fleshly. I was a fleshly man, and I was struggling greatly to minister to my home when my wife finally kind of cracked, and she said, where is my Joel? Where's my Joel? And you kind of get the idea. Where's the guy who cares? Where's the guy who took the vows? Where's the guy who, who wrote the poems? Weren't very good, but he wrote the poems. He sent the flowers. He cared. There were signs of life, signs of, of love. This is Paul saying, where are my Galatians? I don't even recognize you anymore. The Galatians were marred to Paul's eye by the lies that had come in. So Paul rushes to extract the lies that had seduced him. Lie number one. The cross is secondary. That's the first lie that will lead you to fleshly living. The cross is secondary. Now let me explain this passage to you just a little bit. Paul goes on to say, Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That word for publicly portrayed is pergrapho. And what it meant is the idea of um, publicly posting public notices in places where they could be seen, where everyone could read them. 
What Paul is coming at them and saying is, I published the crucifixion of Christ for you, to, for everyone to see. Not just the historical details, but the significance of it. I told you what the cross meant to you. But you have demoted the cross, and therefore you've demoted Christ. Look at what he says there. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That means you are accountable to this. What I told you about the cross of Christ, you are accountable to. And below we stand in a similar situation. What we've been taught and preached about the cross of Christ, we are accountable to. Our lives must show that we've understood, applied, and embraced what has been preached to us. Paul preaches that forgiveness is only through Jesus and that freedom from law is also through Jesus. Listen to this. This was literally Paul's first sermon in Acts, Acts thir or I should say, in uh, the Galatian area. Acts 13, 38-39. Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. That was sermon number one. First thing they heard, and what are they doing? They are not honoring the fact that forgiveness is only through Jesus, and they are going to the law of Moses to find what they need, thinking that will supplement for the work of Christ. They lost the significance of the cross. They lost its value to them. And beloved, so I want to ask you, what is the significance of the cross? What did they lose, and are we losing it? If you ask the Judaizers, what's the significance of the cross? This is what they tell you. Well, the cross is significant. They'd say it's part two of salvation. It follows hard on the heels of circumcision and law keeping. Yeah, you need Christ. You need his cross. That's all well and good. But it's got to be in a combination with works. But I'd like to blow the cover off that right away. And I'd like to tell you the Judaizers are afraid of the cross. They're afraid of preaching the cross. Now, why would I say that? Have you ever noticed that when you preach Christ alone for salvation, the world gets a little mad? If you say it's the cross and circumcision, they don't seem to have a problem anymore, do they? If you say it's Allah and God, they don't have a problem anymore. Why? Because the cross alone is a stumbling block to the world. The Galatians were terrified of being persecuted for the cross. So they had to combine it with something else, something more flavorable. Paul gets right at this. I love it. His aggression. He says, let me just tell you about the guys you're following. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So if that's the Judaizers' view, it's secondary, and we try to combine it because we're actually afraid of preaching it. What's Paul's view of the cross? This is his, must be ours. Paul's view of the cross is that it is crucial and it is climactic. Number one, just uh, three points. You don't have to write them all down, but they come quickly. Christ crucified is your only sacrifice for sin. You only have one sacrifice for sin, beloved, and that is Jesus Christ. In Galatians 1.4, Paul says, He, that is Jesus, gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The blood of bulls and goats throughout history only pointed to one thing, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is the only, check this one out, divine sacrifice. That's the only one that has the righteousness of God attached to it. We must have the righteousness of God. You look at Romans 3, and what does he say? He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of who? Of who? God, thank you. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> the righteousness of God has been manifested. You know what that means? God's righteousness is here. And you've got to have that righteousness, and none of your own will do. And there's only one sacrifice that God will accept that brings the righteousness of God to you. Only one. And that is Jesus. Galatians, you fools. You are putting your dead, hollow, lifeless works on the altar and hoping that it'll work. Galatians are like Cain. They give God what they think he wants. They give God what brings them glory and not God. Number two, Christ crucified is your only escape from the curse of the law. Your only escape. Paul makes much of this in Galatians chapter 3. And what he does is he really points out very, very clearly from Deuteronomy that every man, I'll just read it to you just to get, make sure I get it clear. Puts it simply. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Galatians, you're under a curse. 
We are all under a curse. We read the law, and you know what the law says when it sees us? Yuck. It says unrighteous, unclean, unworthy. This is so not the righteousness of God. This is everything but the righteousness of God. God has only one option to deal with you, and that is to destroy it, to get rid of you completely. That's the curse. A curse is the threat of impending doom. Where from? God. God's wrath poured out on sinners. Galatians seems to have forgotten this. But he says later on that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That is this, the judgment, the wrath of God is coming. In Galatians, there is only one escape route. It's the one with blood on it. The blood of Christ. That's the only way you're going to get out of this. That's significant, isn't it? You know, all too often, beloved, we are like the soldiers at the foot of the cross. We're just gambling over clothes while divine death is occurring behind us. We get numb to the cross, do we not? It's a sad effect of fleshly living that we can read the word or sing about it, and inside, nothing. That is a surefire way to become a Galatian. Number three, Christ crucified is your only righteousness. It's all you've got, beloved. Paul writes in Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Paul says, you know the difference between me and these guys you're following? I only have one boast. I only have one thing to be proud of in my life, and that is the righteousness of Christ. It's his perfection that I boast in. I don't have any of my own. I need his. You need his. Sad thing is the Galatians had become boasters in so many things other than the cross. They began to take pride in their works and the things that they were doing day in and day out. That is a very, very uh, common trap, I think, to all of us believers. You know how it is. You get out the list. Read your Bible. Did it. Pray. Did it. You start to feel good about yourself. You know, woohoo. Look at me. I'm faithful. Paul says, I pull out one list and it's already checked off and it's the righteousness of Christ in my life. That's it. That's all I have. Isn't it great that if you're only boasting in Christ, you're almost, you're just, if that really is your sole focus, you're just humbled immediately. Who would, why would I want to look at myself? I've got Christ right in front of me. Philippians is very helpful in this and this is really Paul's heart for the righteousness of Christ. Good luck trying to take Christ's righteousness out of Paul's hands. He said, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So we would do well, beloved, to ask this. How did the Galatians fall for this lie? How did the cross become secondary to them? And I would say it this way. The Galatian church was vulnerable to this lie because they had already lost the truth. Now let me be very clear with you. Not the doctrinal distinctive of justification by faith. They had lost the value of it. They had stopped savoring it. They had stopped boasting in it. They could say it. They could articulate it. But they had lost it. Let me give you a wonderful picture of this. And I think if there's any picture that can humble you and me, it must be this. All right, say you're a bulwark. You are a tower of justification by faith. You are strong and you understand it all and you know it. You even care about it. Let me ask you something. Do you think Peter knew justification by faith? Peter the apostle, leader of the apostle, think he got it? Let's take a good look at Galatians 2. There's something to learn from this. Paul gives an account of something that happened with Peter at Antioch. And he does it because he's moving in to rebuke the Galatians. But this is what he does. He tells the story of the Galatians. He says, you know, there was a time when Cephas came to Antioch. And when he did, I had to oppose him to his face. That means I had to rebuke Peter, the leader of the apostles. I had to rebuke him because prior to the, certain of coming, the coming of certain men, this is verse 12, by the way, from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. What that means is Peter began to think like a legalist. And a legalist thinks a Gentile is not clean or saved until he's circumcised. What is it called in Ring Around a Rosie? The middle area? The mush pot? That's kind of how it was here in Antioch. All the Jews start pulling back. Leave the unclean Gentiles there. Let's pull back. Let's not be contaminated 
by their lack of righteousness. And Paul steps forward and he says, I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul confronts Peter and he basically he's giving this, do you believe in justification by faith? Can you imagine Peter hearing that from Paul? Why are you telling me about justification by faith? Because you're not living it. How? You've stopped valuing it. You've begun to think of yourself more highly than you think of the righteousness of Christ. How painful to hear things like this. Peter, you're making Christ out to be a minister of sin. Who wants that hanging over them? Peter, you're nullifying the grace of God. Peter, you're making Christ's death needless. That's what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Your activity is nullifying the cross of Christ. So let me ask you, beloved, how does this lie lead to fleshly living? How does making the cross secondary make you fleshly? Well, I'll say this. Fleshly living starts here. If you're going to live a life or a day in the flesh, it's going to start with this. You're going to be numb to the cross. First checkpoint. Do I care about Christ on the cross? And if you are numb to the cross, you need to be warned of three things. One, you're arrogant. You're arrogant. You're walking in pride. You're walking right. Today is going to be all about you and not about Christ. Number two, you need to be warned that you're glory seeking. Life is going to be about singing praises to you and not to Christ. And number three, and something as a church we all need to be sober to, you're dangerous. You're dangerous in the church of God. One of the results of legalistic thinking in the, in the Galatians church was this. Galatians 5.26. Let us not become boastful, envying one another, and challenging one another. See, when you adopt a works system, suddenly it's all about you and the other guy, and you are now in competition with each other. You pray longer than I do. You read longer than I do. Or we get silly about this. Your house is cleaner than mine. You must be the righteous one. Boastful, challenging one another, getting in each other's faces, all about competition, all about who can look the good and smell the best. And Paul even goes so far in Galatians 5.15 to describe it like this. If you bite and devour one another... That means we all just become stepping stones for each other to look better or get ahead of each other. It's a tragic situation, and that's what the Galatians were reaping. Why? Because they had treated the cross as secondary. Lie number two, the spirit is unnecessary. The spirit is unnecessary. Let me point out a few things to you from here from verse two. Paul goes on. Having said, you are accountable to the preaching of the gospel of Christ. You've lost that. You believe the lie that the cross is secondary. He moves on to say, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Now, when you read a statement like that in the epistles, it should get your attention. Paul is saying, let me take the guesswork out of what I'm saying. I'm bringing this to one thing, one issue, one question, Galatians, that I want to ask you. And how you answer it determines where you are. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. Paul lays out two separate and distinct things. How did the Spirit come to you? Was it when you had faith in Christ and believed? Or was it when you got circumcised and started obeying the law? Which one got the attention of God? Well, the answer is so obvious in here. They, they should have said it was the Spirit. Well, it was when we believed. That's when the Spirit came. Paul has pointed to something that he had done. Like, this is very clear in Acts 14. A marvel sometimes at the harmony of the word of God. And that is, it says, when Paul preached the gospel to the Jews, some of them rejected it. So they went and they preached it to the Gentiles. And it said, those who had been appointed to eternal life believed. That means the one, the Gentiles God had sovereignly from eternity past picked out to believe they came to faith. Well, fancy that. Who knew? You know, <laughs> sovereignty works that way. And they were immediately filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy. So the Galatians should have that fresh on their minds. Yeah, that's what happened. That's how we got saved. Let me ask you something. What is the significance of the Spirit's coming? Because the Galatians didn't seem to value the Holy Spirit very much. Why is that? It's because when you're a works-based person or when you're involved in legalism, you don't need God. That's the bottom line. It's life without God. So the Spirit's coming isn't that significant. But beloved, we need to be all about the Spirit's coming. We need to be passionately committed to seeing the Spirit of God in each other's lives. Why is that? Well, let me tell you a few things. First of all, you need to know, the Spirit only comes if God forgives you. The Spirit only comes if God forgives you. 
If you go to Acts 15, what you're going to find is the Jerusalem Council. This is the first council that they had. And what it was is they were trying to decide, how do Gentile believers get saved? Some people said the party of the circumcision, that would be the Judaizers, well, they've got to be circumcised. They've got to keep the law. That's what they need to have. That's what's going to help them get saved. Christ plus circumcision. But that wasn't the answer to the apostles. The apostles were saying, no, do they have the Spirit? The Spirit is the proof that they get saved. See, works might work for men. Men might say, I see your works. You must be a Christian. I'm really impressed by your works. You must be saved. But people who know what the Lord says say, I'm looking for signs of the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for those signs of life. I want to know, is God in that guy? And if he is, if he is, well, then we can link arms and then we can be brothers. The Spirit only comes if God forgives you. Peter makes a great point of this. He reminds of what happened. It's almost like he's saying, Guys, don't you remember what happened with Cornelius? I went to his house, Gentile, preached the gospel. He believed, and Peter says it so well. He says, God, who knows the hearts, gave them the Spirit. You know what that means? It means, Corinthians, it means Cornelius really repented. He really did have faith. How does God know that? Because God gave it to him. God changed his heart and gave him the Spirit of God. So the apostles are like, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. But the Judaizers are just like, they're deaf. It's like, no, circumcision. Circumcision. The works. Law. Law. It's got to be about that. God forgives you if you have the Spirit. That's good news, isn't it? Isn't it good when you see signs of life in people's believers? You can say, man, I have confidence that guy's a believer. By the way, Paul would not be writing this letter if he had no such confidence in the Galatians. But Paul saw them receive the Holy Spirit. He has every reason to believe that the Spirit is going to, you know, convict them of sin. In fact, later on he says, uh, I have confidence in you that you accept no other view. I believe I'm talking to a Christian because I saw the Spirit in you. That's why I'm writing a letter to save you, to pull you out of this. God adopts you. The Spirit only comes if God adopts you. Galatians 4, verses 5 and 6, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If the Spirit is in someone's life, you know they are a child of God. They belong to the Lord. They're in the family because they have the Spirit. Three, God seals you. The Spirit only comes if God seals you. It's a beautiful truth. Paul says in, a, well, it's written actually in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does that mean? It means you're going to get to heaven. It means your justification, your sanctification, and your glorification are certain because God is going to take you from A to Z. God is going to be with you to get you there. It's a great comfort in that. Paul says, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. So how did the Galatians fall for this one? How did they begin to believe Sorry, I forgot what I wrote. <laughs> How did they begin to believe that the Spirit was unnecessary? Simply put, they became works-focused. And again, you don't need God. If you're works-focused, you're not really focused on being with the Spirit or walking by the Spirit or living a Spirit-filled life. You're really just sort of work-focused. Galatians 4.10 kind of gives an indication of all the things that Galatians had pulled themselves into. Uh, it says they were observing ceremonies, uh, laws, trying to observe the Jewish calendar, being as thorough as they possibly could. And in all that busybody work, no one was really thinking about the Spirit. Now, how does this lie lead to fleshly living? What happens when the Spirit is unnecessary? Well, first of all, I would say this. If you grow ill-content with your assurance from God, you will seek to fabricate your own. You will want to make your own assurance. The Spirit is your assurance, beloved. That is your down payment on the unrighteousness of God. But ill-content with that, we begin to make up rules and regulations, things, hoops, human hurdles that we need to jump over and through to feel good, to feel like we really are saved. What happens is fleshly service. Uh, that is to say, we just begin to do the right things, but in all the wrong ways. We become very external. If you're sick at home and someone brings you some burnt pizza, says, here, take it, hospitality, check. Got, you know, I'm done. Our, our service becomes fleshly if we're not thinking about whether the Spirit of God is here. 
The Spirit is the power within and the proof without that God forgives, loves, and owns you. And beloved, that's a motivating idea. That is an idea you cling to when you sin. The Spirit's coming is your comfort when you sin that God's approval has not left you. Just a word on this. God's seal is never broken, beloved. That's the beautiful, that's the beautiful part of a seal. You know what? A seal in the olden days, you know, it wasn't so much the plaster or the oil, you know. It wasn't the physical barrier that you had to break. It was the name. It was the name on the seal. That's what you had to worry about. You didn't mess with a seal that had Rome's stamp on it. Otherwise, you'd have all of Rome against you. Christ has sealed you, beloved. His name is on the seal, and woe be to anyone who messes with it. And oh, if only the Judaizers had thought about that. Let's move on to line number three. The last one. The spirit-filled life is self-generated. The spirit-filled life is self-generated. It seems to me that this one is almost more besetting than the others. Let me give you an exegetical thought here uh, from verse 3. He says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Let me share the word order with you here because it's significant. It would literally, literally be written like this. Having begun by the Spirit, now by flesh, are you being perfected? He lines spirit and flesh up right up next to each other as if to say, look how beautiful the beginning was, Galatians. Wasn't it good when you were walking with God, when you wanted to obey, when you were free to serve, free to do what the right thing was, and you didn't have to wonder if you were trying to earn God's favor or not? Wasn't that good? But now look what happened when you took over. Look what happened when you got your hands on your spiritual life and started to try to fill in the blanks for God. It's as though it's a kickoff. Christ kicks the thing off, but we've got to catch it and run it back and do all the, the whole nine. Sorry, I've got a lot of football in my head because of Thanksgiving. <laughs> all right. Anyway. You are in a process of salvation, beloved. You're already justified. You're being sanctified, and you're looking for glorification. The Galatians had a beautiful beginning. Oh, joy, the spirit, courage, willing to suffer. That was their beginning. Paul even says, did you suffer so many things in vain? If it was in vain. This taking over your Christian life, isn't that just nullifying everything that God has done in you and with you? I like to ask it this way. Can Adam finish what Christ has begun? There's a word here It's good to know. It's uh, the word for flesh. It's sarki. And in the context, it's talking about your humanness. Everything that's fallen about you. I don't, I don't know about you. Um, some of you I know this is true. Some of you I don't. But I know it's true for me. I tried to obey God without the Spirit before I was a believer. That's what I did. And I can tell you, there is no more frustrating experience on earth than trying to obey God and act righteous. You're constant, it's draining. You're constantly generating your momentum. God, yay! You know what I mean? You need camps, frankly. You need high-rev camps and lots of energy drinks to get excited about God. That's what it's like. But man, do you remember when the Spirit really came? Do you remember when there was suddenly a joy and a constancy to the goodness of God in your life that kept you going? Suddenly you could be in a little church, in a little place, singing songs, and there was no pressure. Just let me worship God. That's good. It indicates fallenness. Oh, beloved, if anything we learn from our life before Christ, it's that we're failures and that we are no good at conjuring up works. So again, I need to ask this. What is the significance of being spirit-filled? Spirit Beloved, please, if you've been tuning out, tune back in. This is so vital for our church. It's vital for all of us. If you were to ask a Judaizer, do you need to be spirit-filled? Is that important? He would say, no, not at all. Because activity is everything. Activity is everything. We need to be circumcising people. We need to get the law out there into the hands of the people. We need to get them moving on these things. And you know, there's very similar churches today. Beloved, churches that don't care about whether you're in the Spirit or not, they'll just let you go. Hey, you want to serve here? Right, yeah, that's great. Come join our golfing ministry or whatever it is. Let's, let's all get busy. Won't that be good? And what you need is someone like Paul to blow the horn and say, hey, wait a minute, are you in the Spirit? Do you love God? Is this for Christ? Do you, what do you think? And if they look at you and say, what? You're in the wrong church. Or you need to speak up and say, wait a minute, there's something very wrong here. Busyness just serving all kinds of ministries out there. But beloved, if we aren't, you know what? This ought to be our first question almost when you walk through the doors on a Sunday morning. Are you ready to worship God? Are you in the spirit? 
the reality is, for the Judaizers, they preach works to steal freedom and to gain popularity. This is what's really significant about them. Works are everything not law keeping. I'd like to expose the Judaizers to you for just a moment and tell you they're not law keepers. People who come and preach law doing are not law keepers. It's not about law keeping. It's not about your salvation, beloved. I wish the Galatians had eyes to see this. They don't care about you. They, wanna, they want to parade you. You're their glory. They walk their way, and behind them is a crowd of confused, disturbed, circumcised people, utterly useless to God, and they say, look at my glory. Look what I did. They're all just like me. Such a shame. That was the reality of what was going on. And it's a fitting description of many churches. But what is the significance of being spirit-filled to Paul? That's where we go. Paul says, having begun by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Spirit-filled living is the only thing that matters. And I don't throw those words out idly. It's the only thing that matters. There is no other kind of living that glorifies God. The rest of it is wood, hay, and stubble. That's the only gold and silver is when you are walking with the Spirit of God. Spirit-filled living brings genuine Christ-likeness to what we do. Do I need to sell it any more than that? You want to serve someone and really want to serve, some, serve them? Paul told the Colossians, I believe it was the Colossians, but it stuck out to me when we were in a flock, I have the affection of Christ Jesus for you. Man, I want to say that. I want to say that to you. I care about you like Christ. I can't say that outside of the Spirit. I can only say I care for you like Joel. So if you feed me, you know, I'll mow your lawn. You know? That's my love for you. Think about the fruit of the Spirit, beloved. Don't you want to serve God? Men, don't you want to serve God in your homes with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and all the rest? What kind of an impact does that make on a home? Huge. Family school workers, flock goers, all of us. Man, you want a marriage that brings glory to God? Stop arguing and walk by the Spirit. This is the most important question to ask yourself every day. Beloved, the question when you ask yourself when you woke up isn't, did I get enough sleep? It's not, is my home orderly and beautiful? It's not, it's not any of those things. When you come here to worship, the, the question isn't, am I on key? The question is, am I in the Spirit? And I see now why Mike struggles with time. Honestly, I feel like five minutes has gone by. You poor people. Anyway, that's my introduction. Let's move on. No. No. So just really quickly, just in, in wrapping this, how does this lie lead to fleshly living that you can self-generate your own spiritual life? What really happened is they thought they were being perfected in the truth. See, beloved, we want to be perfected. Isn't that what Paul said in Philippians? I press on. Paul, I just want to press on. I just want to get on with my Christian living. But we're deceived into thinking that means doing things. It doesn't. The works we do don't make us spiritual. The Spirit makes us spiritual. That's how they deceived. And what happened to them, beloved? Because they did one sure thing. They reaped corruption. You sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. You know what you're going to find? Is that life gets harder and harder and harder outside of the Spirit. Not easier. Also, they manifested the deeds of the flesh. That explains some of the behavior they were having. Biting and devouring each other. Sure. They were full of all kinds of fleshly attitudes and actions. And here's probably the, here's a principle I'm going to leave you with. And it is this. This is what they did. Because they didn't have a focus on being spirit-filled, because they were trying to generate their own, they resolved instead of repented. Do you know what that is? That's when you say, man, I've got to stop doing this. I'm going to stop. I'm resolved. Man, I can't talk to my kid that way. What are you doing, Dad? Be quiet! You know? I mean, oh, I'm resolved. You're all gung-ho. I'm going to do better. God has not designed the Christian life to work that way. What it is is I failed... God of mercy, God of grace, God of the cross, God of the Holy Spirit, God who fills my life, will you forgive me? Yes! Because I'm faithful and just to forgive you. And I will pick you up, and you can go out and serve me. You've lost nothing. You still have the righteousness of Christ. That's when we're humbled, and God can use us. But the alternative is just you resolve, and you resolve, and you resolve until you are absolutely shattered on the floor, and you are a spiritual blob. You've got nothing to offer. So in conclusion, beloved, let me just ask you, are you living foolishly? Are you letting any of these lies seep into how you think and what you feel? 
Have you been bewitched by self-sufficiency? Is that what's controlling you? You got under control and you can bring this, you can bring about this spiritual life. Is the cross secondary? Is the spirit necessary? Is spirit-filled living self-generated? And the last question, does your life prove it? May God teach us the beauty of his way and the folly of our own. Let's pray. Lord, for however you've glorified yourself and for however you've edified or built up the body, I thank you. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to show us, Lord, when our thinking and our living is not in accordance with the truth. Help us not to be lazy or idle, Lord. In your holy name, amen.